It's the Beer Vano Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and in Vancouver at KXRW, or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, and with me is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including The Beer Bible. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How's it going? I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, we're getting... Almost to Thanksgiving. Uh, well, by the time this by the time this airs, be after at Thanksgiving. Uh, that was a great Thanksgiving we had. <laughs> That's okay. People understand that we record and then release. Yes, uh, I, I think so. We are in the the Thanksgiving region of time. That's right. Yeah. You know, uh, one thing that happens when we come—it's uh, actually after. It's between Halloween and Thanksgiving. Yes, is the the sun all of a sudden vanishes from the sky? <laughs> and it gets, seems to get dark about three o'clock, and uh, doesn't get light until nine a.m. And it feels like something really has changed. Yes, and that's that's my experience right now. Yeah. I mean, here we are recording in the middle of the afternoon. It's already getting dark. Yeah, and when the clocks turn back, it <laughs> exacerbates everything. And then in our local park which I live a block away from a, a Portland park, uh, one of the parks that they removed all of the lights from. Whoa. Uh, Down in Selwood? Yes. Selwood oh. Park has no lights because um, in some other park, somebody strung up a, a, a um, ham, uh, not a hammock. Yeah, hammock. Is that what you call a hammock? When you I, string I it between trees and lie in it? Yes, hammock. that's called a hammock. I don't know why that word sounded wrong to me. Uh, and uh, the light fell over because they're old and they're not properly secured or something like that and so suddenly the city's like we have to remove every single light in all the parks and pretty quickly people got wind of that and said no you can't possibly do that well they did unfortunately well unfortunately they did they'd already done a couple a few parks before they stopped because the problem is they didn't have any replacement uh, lights to put in yeah, as a matter of public safety, that does not seem to be a wise. Yeah, uh, so it means it's really dark. Like I, we have a dog, so we walk the dog every evening, and now it's dark, and it's really dark in the park, and so I, I'm definitely feeling the absence of light. Yeah, sometimes I'll go out for a beer, and um, I'll go out, you know, after after work time. Yeah, and Sally and I'll walk in the door, and it'll feel like absolutely the middle of the night. We're like, okay, time for time for bed. And we look at the we look at our watches. Oh, it's 7:30. 7:30. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I know we've been having this these conversations in my house as well. Yeah. Uh, hopefully by the time people are hearing this the uh, strike will be over, but my wife is a public school teacher uh, in Portland and therefore on strike yeah. right now, making national news. Making national news. Hopefully it'll be over. Uh, she's desperate to get back in front of her kids. But I was thinking the and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, the Labor movement seems to be on a on an upswing. Oh man, is it ever? Yeah, and by the way, the Powell's struck too. Does that still go on, or is the Powell thing? I don't know. Supported? Powell's has always had an active and robust uh, union, and has struck even even when strikes weren't popular and they were not successful. People at Powell's were striking. So yeah, I, I missed the, the big most recent bookstore here in Portland. In case. In case listeners don't know. Right. Uh, Which seems finally to, I, I think we can safely say, has weathered the Amazon challenge because they it's been two decades since Amazon launched. But there for a minute, it looked like uh, I was really worried about old Powell's surviving. Yeah. Back when Amazon was really a bookstore. Right. And now books are <laughs> almost an afterthought um, with Amazon. So maybe that helps too. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, yeah. So I'm very happy Powell's is still around. I hope that if they're still on strike, the workers get what they deserve and... More power to them and all that. 
Totally. Yeah, no, so I think I think it's great. I think uh, for the first time in my life, my adult lifetime, uh, my whole lifetime, really, but my adult lifetime for sure, we are starting to see a labor consciousness arise in the United States, which it's been 100 years, really, since we've had a strong labor consciousness in this country. Yeah, so. well, income inequality has become so absurd and so extreme that it's just, it it's about time. Uh, and it was almost inevitable. I mean, you can't just keep uh, seeing these rising income inequality and... Um, and not expect people to start questioning the distribution of wealth. Totally. And I think we really saw that during COVID. COVID the, the, the lasting after effects of COVID are so profound in many that I, I, <laughs> no, it's crazy. I, I constantly think about that. And this is one of them where all these these poor people who were not making very much money were were slapped with the, the uh, label of indispensable workers or whatever that was. And we weren't, they weren't getting paid and it was terrible. And they looked around and... Uh, all the you know white collar people were lounging around in their jammies, and it just the whole thing seemed pretty damned unfair. And and they started to fight the power, and that's very cool. The CEOs were getting half a billion dollars a year in compensation, and <laughs> yeah, they're toiling at nineteen ninety five an hour. Um, that's going on. I don't remember what my point was, but never mind. Well, your wife, your wife is striking as we as we record, and so uh, she's yeah, something the about the darkness too. Yeah, so she's been out on the picket lines and and chanting and. That's uh, true, and doing all and doing all the good, the good labor stuff. That's what's going on. Yeah, I guess you can't strike in the summer. It doesn't make any sense when the weather's nice. You got if you're a school teacher, you got to strike in the. Winter. Well, if you're a school teacher, it doesn't do you any good to strike in the summer because nobody pays. Exactly, you, know, you wouldn't actually be striking. No, um, but it is a really dra- a real drag. They couldn't have come to an agreement because nobody wants to strike. She certainly doesn't want to. But. It's always the way. All right, so. Um, Today's pod is kind of a special, I don't even know, do we call it a beeronomics pod? Sort of a beeronomics? Beer biz? Yeah, something. Uh, I think pod. it's, yeah, we'll call it. We, beeronomics is a, is a large category. Yeah. So not long ago, we received a very interesting email in the mailbag. It came from Pete Hoppins, good friend of the blog, of Portland's English-style brewery, Away Days. You know, and I meant to look it up, and I failed to, but there was a podcast that we recorded yeah. uh, with Nikki and Pete at some point. And it's pod one sixty, you know, three. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Probably around there. <laughs> anyway, not that long ago. Just look look up uh, away days in the in your little search engine. You'll find it. That's right. Uh, and so, actually, I think Pete was not there. We, but I can't remember. I think Nikki and he Marshall part of the, the Brewer. He was there, but yeah, he wasn't part of the interview. That's right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Pete's email was the length of a short article and came with a color coded graph. The essence of the email boiled down to a pithy question he posed about the viability of small breweries today. He asked, do you think we could ever see another brewery as successful as, say, Breakside or Ten Barrel in the Portland area? The email was far too detailed and meaty for a simple mailbag item, so we're bumping it up into the main topic of this pod, and uh, our upcoming news item will also sort of be integrated as well, because... Yeah. We'll talk all about that soon, but first we've got to talk about the news. We only have one item today, but it's a big one around these parts. On November 8th, the founder of Ecliptic Brewing, the legendary John Harris, abruptly announced he'd sold the brand and would be shutting down the brewery. On an Instagram post, he wrote... We have encountered so many issues that other small businesses have faced. A pandemic, rising cost of goods, supply chain issues, and the overall economic climate. 
It has gotten to the point where we are no longer able to continue operations and the company has sold. The sale will allow me to pay back our debts and align the brand with a bigger entity to allow it to continue. Although the brewery has issued no further comment, the industry website Brewbound reported that the buyer was Great Frontier Holdings, the company formed by the merger of Ninkazi of Eugene and California's Wings and Arrows this summer. Yeah, so this also seemed like we might be able to fold this story into this Pete's question. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll circle back, but let's talk about this for a second right. because I mentioned the legendary John Harris. We've done, he pops up in the, in the podcast well, quite a bit. And listeners may remember that we, we had for our 100th episode, our grand 100th episode, uh, we had our only live ever, our only ever live episode where X-Ray FM broadcast live from Ecliptic Brewing yeah. uh, with John Harris. was, And in which we had microphone issues. We had a microphone issue, so it kind of went off the rails right <laughs> off the bat. But anyway, that goes to show uh, how big a deal he is. We were like, what's the biggest celebrity we can get in the, the yeah. city of Portland? And yeah, it was John and that Harris. was at the, the booming uh, uh, Ecliptic. And one of the, the things about Ecliptic is I have I had for a long time uh, espouse this theory that there was sort of this Goldilocks zone mm-hmm. for craft brewing. You don't want to be too big that you became like the big band that everybody doesn't like because it's too cool. You know, it's cool to not like the big popular band. But you needed to have economies of scale. And so you needed to have be big enough to get the cost down that you could really make decent profits and, and uh, come in the market at a good price point. And that, I thought, was roughly around 30,000 barrels. And Ecliptic was fit right in. He grew that brewery very quickly. Uh, it was thriving, it seemed, from the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was in that zone. And I would have thought that like Breakside, um, Freem, other similar sized breweries, that uh, he was in a good a good spot. So it was quite a shock. It, it was definitely a huge shock. He, he, he had just uh, held the 10th anniversary of the brewery mm. uh, a week or... 10 days before uh, that announced. Oh, well, let's see. It was the 8th. Yeah, I think it was. Um, might that, I think his announcement was November 1st. I don't know. Or the 10th anniversary. I can't remember. Anyway, yeah, it wow. was uh, right before then. He was at the brewery. I went and had a pint. Um, I said hello. And he had, of course, he knew that this was a very melancholy moment. But um, none of us knew. So uh, it was real, definitely a shocker. Yeah. And we have no... Well, I have no inside no information at all. So all we can do is speculate. But um. yeah, and I think uh, one thing I, I think you're exactly right that Ecliptica was set up according to rules that John knew well from his 30 years of being in the business before he started it. Yeah. But uh, those rules are all changing, and that kind of gets to Pete's point here. Yes, uh, exactly. So I think we can talk a little bit about some of the things that might affect a brewery like ecliptic without knowing exactly what happened with ecliptic. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, as we, as we go through Pete's, uh, email and kind of talk about his, his hypothesis, we'll interrogate whether we think those are accurate, uh, or, or if something else is maybe perpendicular to them or whatever. Uh, and we'll throw in ecliptic. Um, and we actually have a beer that we're going to try today. Uh, from a large brewery, which doesn't quite fit into the same model, but um, also goes to show that the the rules for the bigs are shifting too and how they're responding. Yes. All right. Well, that sounds good. So why don't we just go ahead and launch into into a, a dissection of Pete's 
That's right. Uh, email and and as we do that, we can talk about uh, trends and ecliptic itself. Yeah. So I, I thought I would just break down what he wrote and and we would we would read what he wrote and then I'm I'm going to ask you do you do you do you think that's accurate? Uh, the first the the first two points are just kind of table setting. Yeah. And uh, they're sort of hype. They're, they're sort of the the case. So I, I think it's worth asking, is this right? <laughs> well, and, and as a disclaimer, before you even get started, uh, the, the genesis of this is just how quickly everything seems to be changing and how the rules are changing so quickly. Right. And so all we can do is speculate along with, with everybody else about what the future looks like and how things are evolving because it's a little bit dizzying right now. And as you sort of alluded to, John Harris set up his business according to rules that seem to be uh, that the dominant ones are seem to seem to be correct for the landscape and the landscape is quickly changing totally for all of the reasons he mentions for COVID and inflation and saturation and all that so let's go ahead and, um, and just uh, start talking about Pete's comments and we'll do our best to sound smart <laughs> <laughs> well we haven't done that ever in the no. past so uh, let's not set the bar too high all right, he starts out by saying, it's clear that we've reached a saturation point for breweries in the Portland area. It seems to me that there's only a space for a certain amount of brands based on the population. For, so for every new brewery that pops up, another one might have to close. There's only so much shelf space in the market. True or false? Um, I think uh, true in the extent, to the extent to which uh, things are pretty saturated. Uh, we've talked about this before. I think there's always... Um, uh, potential of room for um, a, um, a restaurant, a tap room, maybe a small brewery, neighborhood based. But in terms of sort of a decent sized uh, brewery um, focusing mostly on beer, um, I think we have pretty much reached saturation. Um, one thing I would say that it's not, I, I don't think it's a zero sum game in the sense that, um, you know, one has to fail for one to succeed or that. Um, uh, or that a new one coming in causes an old one to to leave, uh, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Not that necessarily getting pushed out. I think it's even more, uh, this is maybe sort of sad, but even more uh, um, uh, random than that. Like some breweries kind of capture the zeitgeist a little bit or are kind of in it brand for a while or find a following that's pretty loyal and some don't and sometimes that's location sometimes it's the beer sometimes it's the branding and it's just really hard to know um and then who leaves can be a function of you know anything from you know <laughs> equipment failures and and being too leveraged or um you know uh quality of the beer yeah. So um, uh, that's a really long-winded way to say that, yes, I think we are at saturation, just like we could say something similar about restaurants. Right. Right? There's plenty of restaurants in Portland. There's still new ones that open up, and there's lots of restaurants that go away, and that we're sort of in that mature phase now. I totally agree with all of that. I agree with Pete as well. And the only thing I would add is for a period of time, Oregon had this nice first mover advantage and mm -hmm. we had there, there's a regional and national market. And so yeah. it was possible for a period for Portland to be saturated or Oregon to be saturated, but breweries could grow by moving to other regions, but now they're saturated. And so that becomes much harder. Yeah, actually that's a, that's an excellent point. And, and um, I think you're, absolutely right about that there was 
uh, a time in which if you were an Oregon brewery, you could sort of count on being able to sell around even like Washington and California. And there is a market for beer and you could push out and we're going to try. Um, actually, this is a good moment. We can talk about Rogue. Yeah. Rogue, because Rogue was one of the early craft brewers in Oregon, did quite well locally, but really pushed out nationally yeah and was able to find markets everywhere yeah they had maybe a 50 face state strategy but certainly a, a, a basically national strategy yeah and they were sending beer to japan and right uh and and so um the local market was part of it but the the regional and, and national market was another big part um, and i think that's almost completely gone yeah i think that's right you can, i mean you might be able to sell a little beer here and here and there but People in California don't need Oregon beer. People in Washington don't need Oregon beer. People in Idaho don't even need Oregon beer anymore, right? So, right, and it's why we see the bigger brands, uh, the bigger breweries, really souring on their craft brands because they're no longer they no longer believe that they're just going to be able to sell whatever IPA that they buy that's really hot at the moment nationwide. It's just it hasn't worked. So yeah. you know they you know the Goose Island IPA sold nationally for a while and now. When was the last time you saw Goose Island IPA anywhere in Portland? Yeah. <laughs> you don't see it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it's the exception, I suppose, that proves the rule that you can still find Sierra Nevada everywhere, but that's just yeah. about it. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that's a really good a really good point as well. So not only is the local market saturated, but there isn't a sort of outlet for your beer elsewhere. So I'm pouring, so we were talking about Rogue, I'm pouring uh, Rogue's first sort of famous beer. Sort of. Well, <laughs> all right, let me rephrase. <laughs> the beer that Rogue sort of launched uh, its whole business on was called Dead Guy Ale. Right. Uh, which was, you can go ahead and describe it. Uh, a, kind of a strong amber ale. Yeah. Um, yeah. A very I, much a beer of its time. Right. But it was uh, very much part of the identity of Rogue. Like yeah. Dead Guy was just it. Uh, and it was, you know, it's a cool name, cool branding, cool little skeleton guy. <laughs> yeah, he's like a, I don't know, it's like Mesoamerican skeleton. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember the story, but yes, it's but he's got a big beer mug, so that's cool. Yeah, and um, got a hat on, some kind of hat. Uh, and uh, Rogue is one of these businesses that keep they keep pumping out beer, but like any legacy brand, has had a hard time sort of staying relevant in the market. Um, so why don't you explain what this is that we're so drinking. we're drinking Dead Guy IPA. They decided to do a, a Voodoo Ranger or a Hazy Little Thing approach and brand Ooh. Dead Guy as sort of the uh, its own its own brand. And now they have Dead Guy IPA. They have that Dead Guy, the original Dead Guy, mm -hmm. uh, Dead Guy Pilsner, and Dead Guy Pale Ale. Uh -huh. so they have a, a brand, and they and they all come with the skeleton guy. The skeleton guy cans are a different color, so they're all really clear what you're getting in terms of, you know, branding. Right. Uh, the the pilsner is white, and I think the uh, I think the pale is light blue, but I could be wrong about that one. Anyway, um, they've also chosen to go for a very uh, well, the pilsner is they use a it's a it's a pilsner. It's not. <laughs> Not very trendy, but the both the pale and the IPA I think are very much uh, future forward. They're definitely juicy and they use mm -hmm. really nouveau hops. So um, that's a that's kind of a sharp break from 
Dead Guy, which, as you said, is pretty retro. Yeah. Pretty, pretty 1988. <laughs> yeah, it is. Very 1988. Uh, this, is, this is quite good. It's, um, it's bitter. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it is a West Coast. It's clear. Yeah. Um, uh, it is a little bit darker than than uh, some IPAs these days. Yes, yeah, but it's less, a little more amber than blonde. Yeah, yeah, but it the malt base actually is quite. It's not like very, it's not a malty beer at all. No, despite its appearance, it's yeah. all it's all just color. Um, and I, I think it's got what I what we discovered when we did our IPA taste off, which is this sort of fruity dank thing mm-hmm. that is characteristic of Oregon IPAs right now. Yeah. Uh, so it's got, it's got all fruit up, up in the front. And then as you swallow this dank kind of resinous cannabisy thing mm-hmm. kicks in. Uh, so to me, it feels pretty spot on for, yeah. And for it's trends. got a nice little bitter charge, a little, little, little heavy for a modern IPA, but I like it. Although I think maybe we're coming back to those. So I think maybe yeah. it might be modern in, in the sense that, it's where this is where it's headed. Some some breweries are really adding a little bit more bitterness. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, it's so, it's too early to know. How, yeah, how but this is go. interesting to me because I think this is true of the evolution of craft beer. Is that uh, Rogue, like a lot of places, would each time they had a new beer, they sort of brand the beer itself, mm-hmm. and it'd be entirely different. You know, they still have the Rogue name on the bottle but the but the picture would be different and it would be some you know i don't know yellow snow ipa and <laughs> or shakespeare stout shakespeare and, stout it'd be very very different and for a long time that was the big thing like naming your beers and branding your beers yep uh and i think that this is where a lot of places have re- have sort of gone is sort of retrenching on one single identity mm-hmm. and having different styles but within one brand if that makes sense yeah then uh, I think that just is also another um, aspect of a mature market. When you was only like six breweries out there, then you focus more on the beers. The individual beers had their own identities. But now you, as a brewery, you really need to sort of cement your identity in the minds of drinkers. Yeah, it really it really reminds me both of uh, Voodoo Ranger and, and Hazy Little Thing in that, uh, especially with Voodoo Ranger, people started to recognize Voodoo Ranger as separate from... Uh, the new Belgium brand. And I think outside of Oregon, this is not true in Oregon, but I think outside of Oregon rogue is so synonymous with dead guy that that was the vehicle uh, that they thought would be more, you know, more powerful in the, in the consumer's mind. So it's interesting. Yeah. Well, good luck. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that was Pete's first question. So yes, I think we are in saturation. Yes. It changes the, it changes the landscape for any brewery existing and, uh, starting, uh, brewery starting up yeah and i think the second piece to this we've kind of talked about but i'll just mention it what he said that's why we're seeing so many tap rooms open up in underserved neighborhoods where the breweries can sell their beer uh, at its most premium i agree that the mature market is creating more niche and better quality experiences all around it's no longer good enough to have great beer yeah and we've heard this from a number of of local brewers uh, the strategy of opening up tap rooms and being able to sell direct to consumer where the margins are high mm-hmm. um, has become really important. The draft business overall is down. Packaging is low margins, especially when you're distributing and selling in supermarkets and stuff. Um, but even that, I think, is starting to become pretty saturated. Right. And we saw with Ecliptic, they opened Moon Room and 
uh, at one point they closed the moon room. So moon room was a satellite tap room. Right. Uh, and at one point they closed it. Uh, that was partly a staffing issue, but not clear what else might have been involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it was never, never a super popular hang. Yeah. Uh, so that might, you know, it what seemed to be a sure bet. The tap room model spinning out new tap rooms <laughs> seemed to be a sure bet at one point, and then all of a sudden, maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. And here I have a question for you, Jeff, which is interesting. So there are other cities in which you, uh, tap rooms mean basically taps and snacks mm-hmm. at most, mm-hmm. but in Oregon. Thanks probably to the McMinimans, we mm-hmm. we expect uh, a full menu when we go to drink beer, and that really makes the business model much harder. So having a tap room, uh, th- there are some that may basically just do do drinks. There are so few that just do drinks that don't. At, at this point, if you don't at least have a food truck out there, right. it's kind of you're kind of dead. And I'm pretty sure Moon Room had a food truck. Uh, you know, it's really it's really common for them to have food trucks. So that that is your kitchen, right? That becomes your kitchen. Yeah, and then you, and then you're a little bit reliant on the food truck uh, business owner to to open when they say they're going to open and to be around when you need them. And right. Um, so if that becomes unreliable, and you know, and that kind of I don't know exactly how how those business arrangements are done, but I imagine that mostly it's just cross your fingers and hope that each side is doing their job. Totally. So I think that um, it, it's more complicated in Portland just because because of the food the food piece. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so and you know tap rooms are everywhere now. And this is our real port. We're, we're, when we go to the next one, we're going to talk about the way Pete thought about this, and and the food thing is a real deal because in some cities you can't actually do food like in Minneapolis. If you have a brew pub, you can't also be a distributing brewery, so you have to pick your poison, and nobody picks brew pub, so they right. they do. Uh, distributing brewery with tap room, which means they don't offer food, but you can still have a tap room. So right. it's the obvious choice. So this this Pete's next point is not going to function in Minneapolis uh, and in some other places, but um, we every every place is it's got its own weird quirks, and you can adjust if you happen to be living in a different town uh, as we talk about these, because I think the general principles are still probably accurate. Yeah. He okay. sent he sent along a graphic, which of course we can't <laughs> we can just explain, but we can't really. Uh... Yeah, I think it's pretty it's pretty easy to to visualize in the following sense. There's basically um, uh, the the x axis, the left to right axis, goes from on the left side, no concept or no theme, to sort of high concept on the right, having a big theme uh, to your beer uh, to your um, your establishment, and the y axis is simply no food. All the way up to a full full service restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, and so he was just trying to sort of think about how uh, breweries fit in this sort of grid: the food, no food, and the concept, no concept. And he writes, "From there, we looked at where we thought the industry was heading. Basically, you have to have a niche and offer some kind of food going forward. Interestingly, the most successful of the older breweries have managed to pivot to become more specialized in their offering, or added more tap room locations." One of the things that really attracted me to this email was his idea of a concept, having a concept or not. Yeah, and um, he didn't actually define that too well in, in term in the in the email. I'm mm-hmm. sure he defined it when they were doing their business plan. Uh, and as I started thinking about it, I was thinking there are a lot of different ways to envision a concept. Uh, and yeah. I'm uh, yeah, I, I 
I, and I think probably if you have something that is conceptual, uh, it's better than than having a generic. We we have a range of beers, uh, you know, and and a generic tap room. Um, you, you know, the, the the concept might be that we make a particular kind of beer. We make lagers, or the concept might be that uh, our when you come to our brewery, uh, like this is the McMinimans, we have incredibly cool old, old restored. Uh, historic buildings and so and they're all painted and they right. look like uh, funky artwork and yeah. you know Grateful Dead themes <laughs> right so so that's a you know that's highly conceptual ambiance but right. their their beer is not conceptual <laughs> so there's a lot of different ways to think about that and I I think it's an incredibly astute and important uh, piece as you have 10,000 breweries Generic is probably not a, a good thing. Yeah, I know. I was going to ask you if you thought the data would support being good at all kinds of beers or sort of being specialized or known for uh, certain styles and whether that's changed. Uh, I think I think it's definitely changed. I think in the in the in the former times, in the early part of the craft beer era, you wanted to offer a broad range right. because you had a lot of different people. You know, people didn't really know what they liked yet, so yeah. you'd have a mixed party, and they would come, and they would all like different beers. So you had to offer all the different beers, and demand was constantly changing because right. people were just getting introduced to different types of beers too. I think. Yeah, good point. Then uh, that's really shifted now, and yeah. having a bunch of generic beers, some of which you probably don't make very well, yeah. uh, is it does seem like that's kind of a downside. And so the more people know you for your, the kind of beer you make, I think it makes sense to me that that would help articulate your vision yeah. to the consumer and help stand out a little bit Yeah, to have some kind of identity. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, and it doesn't preclude you from making an IPA if you're focused like away days, you know, is focused on English ales, mm-hmm. but they also, because they're in Portland, they make a pretty modern IPA as well. And they do some loggers. And they do some loggers, right. Uh, yeah. But having that sort of identity that people can understand might might be important in the modern market where there is so much. And they also have the piece, and I think this is valuable to use Away Days as an example. They have uh, the soccer theme. So it's sort of the mm-hmm. – um, they, they started uh, – before there was a brewery, there was the Toffee Club, which was their, their uh, English-style pub that, that – was became one of the premier soccer pubs in the city. Yeah. And that's a cool way to, so, you, you know, that's a, their soccer is popular, popular all over Europe, all over the world. So it's easy enough to do a lager, um, and, you know, wink at, at Germany and Argentina and Brazil. Like right. you, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you can tie together your theme. Um, if you can harmonize your theme, both in terms of the beers that you make and also the, the concept of the brand, um, I think that's a valuable way to guide customers to give them some sense of coherence of what you're trying to do. Yeah, and I guess we can go back to sort of my favorite <laughs> analogy, uh, which has been my favorite analogy for years. I think it only becomes more appropriate every year, which is the restaurant analogy. So, you know, uh, I don't think any like little restaurant's going to be uh, become super well known and successful because they're like the Cheesecake Factory and have a 62 page menu. <laughs> yeah, true. where you can buy everything. Uh, you know, <laughs> restaurants are very much a very you know uh, identified as a 
I had the good fortune of going to Ox the other day, which is Argentinian steakhouse. Mm. Right. Fantastic, wonderful. But, you know, very clear identity. Um, the uh, Pete mentions Khan, which is the new sort of Nouvelle Haitian restaurant that's getting all the buzz. Right. Um, and not long ago, a, a, uh, I can't remember the name of the Russian restaurant, which was getting a lot of attention. Oh, which was yeah. An, an amazing thing because you don't think of Russian cuisine as right. um, super cutting edge. Uh, the but, problem is, I think, that you get into this situation where there's a. Uh, the more you specialize, it potentially limits your shelf life. Mm hmm. Right, because tastes change. You know, people were really Russian food was really cool for a while. It's new. It's I want borscht morning, noon, and yeah. night for the rest <laughs> of my life. But then after a while, like, okay, that's no longer cool. But this Haitian restaurant, now that's super cool. <laughs> I've not had that before. So I think you just, I mean, it's just the way it is, right? It's so as a as a brewer, you can you can focus and, and create your identity on a specific style of beer and hope that you know that stays relevant for a while. I do think one thing that craft beer has done a less great job at, and it's always seemed like a missed opportunity, is the the physical space of of their tap rooms. Mm-hmm. It's always the I guess the the ambiance is is craft beer tra- tap room, and that's it. <laughs> and it seems to just end there. So they're all very generic in that sense. And um, when I was teaching a business, the business of craft brewing at PSU. Mm-hmm. Uh, I threw out examples for for prospective brewery owners to think about identifying very specific, like cool things you can do in your brew house. And I, I just spitballed a few things that may or may not be good ideas. But as examples, um, like you could have a Hollywood themed, uh, you know, restaurant tap room where you showed, you know, there was old noir films being shown on one wall and you have mm-hmm. a bunch of memorabilia and it's right. like very very cool or like a hip-hop place where you have uh cool 80s like run dmc adidas sneakers yeah. and like you know there's there's ways to give it real character and kind of sense of place um that would then last longer than uh, you know, yeah, there maybe, is maybe just the a Haitian restaurant. Or there, something. Well, yeah, there is definitely a Portland tap room brew pub aesthetic, which is very kind of sterile. Mm-hmm. Very, it's not just Portland; it's all over the world. In fact, I mean, yeah, a, a craft beer tap room just looks like a craft beer tap room. You can be anywhere in the world when you're in one. Yeah, and I I agree. There's not a lot of character. What what I immediately reminded of is way back when. Back in the day, Jeff. All right. We're going all the way back to the 80s. Uh, the Bridgeport Brewery. Right. Um, which was this amazing space in this old brick building, and it had little nooks and crannies, and they had overstuffed furniture, and it was just a, a very unique and welcoming and warm space yeah. that was really cool. Yeah, totally. Um, it was like a, it had the, the feel of an English pub, but it had the look of a Northwest place it was a lot of it was all fill off all fir wood from yep when it was built as a as a fact as a rope factory so it was these old beams and yep. amazing fir wood so it had a really warm feeling and yeah it was yeah. awesome and so you know when you go into these tap rooms there's nothing terribly unique or distinct about them you could they're kind of interchangeable that's probably bad if right. you're trying to like <laughs> secure your own little sort of identity and customer uh i also find them not the most comfortable places so if you really want people to hang around for a few hours and drink beers and stuff, you know, focusing on having nice places to sit and chat and 
um, you know, just a nice atmosphere, I think is, I think is important. I think that that's one thing, and we'll get to this in a second because he's going to talk about his toffee club, which is now closed. So Pete, uh, Pete opened the toffee club first, and then the Way Days Brewing was a, an offshoot of that. And the toffee club had the sort of English pub feel, the old rugs and the mismatched furniture, and just felt very comfortable and very inviting and the kind of place you'd just like to sit for a few hours. Yeah. And I think uh, that tap rooms could definitely take some notes. <laughs> Although, ironically, Away Days is a very, uh, very um, austere, the, their aesthetic is quite austere. Yeah. It's uh, very bright and white. It's white walls and like a day glow mural of very bright it's like it, it reminds me of an ice cream shop when I'm there, i feel like i'm in an ice cream shop <laughs> yeah uh that's actually very good i think that's a good analogy and that, i think perhaps that was trying to make itself distinct from the top totally. club who was next door so it was trying to create a very different experience um but you know as they're building out their new place they hopefully will think about adding a little bit of the english pub experience right so let's get to his next point which is about pricing yeah, this is really fascinating to me. So he writes, I think the middle market is being squeezed, for example, toffee club clothing, and folks are instead going to high-end restaurants or dive bars. Get two cheap pints or highballs at a dive bar, then go to Khan, as we mentioned, for a $200 meal. Sounds crazy, but I think that's what a lot of folks are doing. So that's very interesting. I actually don't have... I mean, I'll take his word for it. Yeah, me too. I... Yeah, I, I I don't know how to interrogate that one. It, it sure it seems maybe right to me. I don't know. Yeah, I'll I'll say that, um, uh, the you know I went to this ox this Argentinian steakhouse. It's it's expensive. It's high end high end place. Very hard to get a reservation. It just happened to it was my older son's birthday and found a reservation like on a Tuesday night at nine o'clock or something like that. Right. And, uh, and it was packed in there and people, you know, so they were, um, these high end places are doing, uh, some of them at least are doing great business, which I felt I found a little bit shocking. I mean, right now, you know, you hear about Portland and it's, uh, having some issues and stuff and you think, but people are out there. People are working. People have money to spend. Yeah. Um, and they're looking for high-end experiences, perhaps. And I'm wondering whether this has to do with a post-COVID thing where you don't go out as much. And so when you do go out, you're really looking for some high-end experience. I don't know how that sort of dovetails with the dive bar piece, but maybe. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I think it... So I, I can't speak so much for the dive bar, but the... Uh the trends in beer do seem to be there's a downscale trend and uh, modern drinkers if you're under 30 you probably have no particular animosity uh toward mass market lagers the way that earlier generations <laughs> did that's yeah. just, it's all beer right there's just so many breweries and modello is cool and uh heady alice which you have in your hand is cool it's all cool it's just beer and uh it's nice to buy uh, beer that's half the price of uh, craft beer. Yeah, I mean, beer, uh, craft beer in the '80s and '90s was a was a revolt against industrial lagers, which is all you could get. Right. And so there was that big piece, and I I think you're right. I think that's gone now. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's the there's the natural aversion to to craft lagers. I think a new a new beer drinker would just be like, well, it's all beer and it's all okay, and craft lagers are cheap and they're not as good. Maybe you're not as flavorful, but they're not bad. And so yeah. Yeah, uh, I, uh, uh, I don't know. Like, 
I guess the analogy, if you were taking it to beer itself, would be that like the high end sort of, you know, barrel aged or double IPAs or Belgian triples or things like that would be like the high end beer. And then people are buying the mass market lagers on the other end in the middle. But I think craft beer itself is still largely in the middle that he talks about coming up with a, a, a relatively cheap table beer. Pour out that heady Alice while, yeah, I, while, I, while I tell you the interesting story uh, of a Virginia brewery that decided to re, uh, lower their prices in their tap room to $3.50 a pint. And they based it on, uh, and I read this on a blog, and it was super, was fa- it was really fascinating to me. Um, they, de- they decided to base it um, on their profit margin uh, in, in distribution and uh, they came out to, they thought it was about 350 a pint would be a worthwhile amount to go for. And they were hoping that, of course, they would make so up. Low margin, lots of volume. Lo- they make up a lot of volume at the tap room. Yeah. And that's, that was super interesting to me. Yeah. I, I think. What was, what, was the, what, what was the conclusion? Did it work? Or? Well, it just happened. Oh, okay. So, uh, okay. But the, the guy who wrote about going. it was pretty damn excited. He was like, $3.50 a pint? I'm in. <laughs> Uh, it was a it was a kind of a cool brewery that does a lot of lagers. So yeah, interesting. Well, for okay, let's take a second and just say this is the Hetty Alice uh, collaboration with Upright Portland's Upright Brewing. Uh, it's a BIPA. B is for Belgium. Belgian. It's based on sort of like a De La Seine, uh, Zinnabier, Taurus Bulba. Hetty Alice is the side project of Gavin Lord, who is one of the three people who is at the new Living House Brewery. Right. And this was his side project. So I uh, thought it would be fun for us to get some Hetty Alice in Kohatu here. and Eldorado hops. Ah, Kohatu. Kohatu. Tell me what Kohatu. What, what, what were you looking for in Kohatu, Patrick? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm <laughs> guessing it's New Zealand. I think it's New Zealand. It sounds like a New Zealand yeah. name. I, I tried to ask so, you what you... So it's going it's to be uh, grapefruit and kiwi. Um, and white wine. And white wine. Yeah, there Grapes. you go. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, I think, I think uh, Gavin's doing some really nice work. He, he also released recently a uh, Portuguese... Pilsner or Portuguese lager hmm. and it's really nice beer it's kind of toasty and um, but very light and I'm like is that a thing he's like well <laughs> I was in Portugal and the local lagers I had were really great so this is sort of inspired by them so I don't think it's actually a thing but uh, there you go <laughs> um, uh, what was I going to say oh yeah I, that, I'll be very interested to know how that experiment works because I mean I'm not representative of the typical client anymore so but you know, I'd much rather. I, I don't care if it's three fifty or seven bucks because I'm probably only having a couple pints, and I care more about having a good experience, a nice, comfortable place, a fun place to visit, good friends, easy conversation. You know, blah blah blah. So, uh, but you know, when I was young, I probably cared about how much it was going to cost me and how many beers I could have. Yeah, I, I think it matters to a lot of people, uh, and I think the reason other breweries won't do this is because. Uh, a big part of the way that they have their business model pan out is pencil out is you make a, a, a really large profit margin on the beer that you sell on premise and that subsidizes the stuff that you put into uh, uh, into distribution. Yeah. So, you know, I, I remember a brewery telling me early on that uh, 10% of his beer was sold on premise and it accounted for 30% of his revenues. 
Well, if yeah. you if you drop those down to ten percent, so that now they're now they're generating the same revenue. Uh, you know, your uh, your ten percent now your overall business model doesn't look as healthy as it used to. And I mentioned that to other breweries, and they have said, yeah, that that work that sounds about right to me. So I think it depends on your package mix. Maybe if you're not selling anything at all, uh, the grocery stores you could afford to do that. Um, you know, I think to go back to Ecliptic, one of the things that's a little bit hard to know is, you know, John mentioned uh, some of the headwinds that hit him. I know Ecliptic grew by going into into distribution, and those margins are very narrow. Yeah. Uh, and we don't, what you can never know about a brewery is how much leverage they're, you know, how much debt they're carrying. Yeah. How leveraged they are. Like, um, it, do they own their uh, facility or are they renting and did their, did their lease just get double in price because it came due? Like there's a bunch of stuff that you don't really know. Yep. Um, and so drawing a general conclusion from a specific example can sometimes be a little dicey. Yeah. But this price, the price comment is interesting because I've long believed that having that economies of scale is really important mm-hmm. because you could then, you know, sell a nine ninety nine six pack rather than a $12 six pack. Um, and totally. that, yeah, and that could really make a big difference, especially as, you know, during COVID, I was worried about the economy. The economy seems to have uh, miraculously uh, survived um, without too much runaway inflation or unemployment. So, um, but I would have bet on a on an ecliptic um, surviving much more than some of these smaller breweries because because they're able to compete so well on price on the other hand that kind of competition is the competition you see in the grocery store which you just mentioned is very low margin right so and and i think it's i think in some cases may actually be uh people might be running in the red to be in in grocery stores at this point depending on the you know their business model and a whole bunch of things depending on what kind of beer they're selling and and there's a whole bunch of different factors there. Yeah. So uh, that's obviously not good. <laughs> if, you're, if you're losing money uh, or even just breaking even, I mean, it, it, it may it may work out to break even because, you know, your, your volume is up so you can keep more people there and live to fight another day when, when the margins improve. But um, it, it's, it's, it's challenging and it's, uh, it's much more challenging when you're in heavy into distribution. Uh, I think the margins have those margins have gotten especially bad post COVID. Yeah. So I have a question that just occurs to me, which is, you know, back in the day when you and I were young, so mm-hmm. we're talking about last year, decades ago. <laughs> I mean, the brew pub was just that. It was you had this little little brewing equipment in the back that uh-huh. you'd brew the beer that you sold in the pub, and that was it. That was your business right. plus some food. And uh, there are very few places that are like that anymore. Yeah. Is that still viable? Oh, I think it's totally still viable. Um, COVID really changed all of that because that that model was not viable during COVID. Yeah. And yeah, so everybody went into package. And, and I mean, I think if you just rewind back to uh, early 2020, many of the breweries that we think of as classic uh, brew pubs in Portland, like Lucky Lab, mm-hmm. McMinimins. Yep. Uh, they were just brew pubs and yeah. they were really, you know, caught in big trouble. And yeah. so, uh, but I, but I think that model is fine. I, I, I think it's a great model. If you, you know, again, you got to go back to what's your rent, you know, all, all of those things, how much money are you, Yeah. Sure. you know, so 
Yeah, I just I mentioned that because now it seems like a lot of the business models start with a fairly decent sized brewery from which they plan to sell on premise, to sell in package, to sell in kegs, and maybe even satellite taproom, right? Like uh, the um, newly opened Grand Fur, not far from where we're sitting right yes. now. Um, that's basically a brew pub. I mean, yeah, Whitney sells a tiny bit in cans, but that model is designed to run, okay. function as a brew pub. Yeah. So it, it is, it is possible. And, you and, know, I mean, everything has their challenges now right. to, to Pete's point, there's no, there's no give in yeah. the system. So you can't be kind of lame and figure it out as you go. But my, I guess I'm wondering if that sort of now it was the past and will be the future. Um, we're getting closer to yeah. his question, which is the okay. a thing that I'm curious. Let's go, go for it. Well, we still have, he has his prediction, then, and then we're going to get back to his question, and we're going to okay. wrestle with his question. But, uh, and I'm curious about your well, how you don't answer his question. We'll get to that in a moment. But he asks, the future brewery will not just be a brewery. It will be a brand first, allowing it to pivot to meet changes in consumer preferences, for example, non-alcoholic beer and cider, and allow it to flex into other markets, for example, record labels, soccer clubs, fashion, naturally by building brand loyalty with its fan base. Hmm. That's very interesting. Now, here we come to a rather so Pete, bold prediction. Yeah, well, and Pete's uh, uh, personal um, background is he used to work at Nike as um, the guy who uh, helped. Uh, I, I, I don't know if he was he designer himself, but he designed soccer uniform shirts and stuff like that. He was a, yeah, he was on the soccer side, and I can't remember what he did. And I but yeah. I think but he was part of the development of the next you know the next shirt for clubs and, and national teams and things like that. Yeah, and I think he and Nikki or he alone or somebody. I think they still have a little side project of doing design work. So mm, right, yeah. yeah, and they're as very design forward. They have a very distinct brand and design. That goes along with the way days. Um, uh, interesting. So I kind of have almost the opposite take that um, uh, I, I get where he's coming from. So if you're a brand and if you're known as a brand, um, then you can kind of take that brand where consumers go. Mm -hmm. um, but we just talked earlier about if you're a brewery, you need to sort of identify yourself as something. And so right. that's where I worry. Like if you're just a brand and not, um, you know, the brewery that does great lagers or the brewery that does great English beers, um, then I think that just leads to more fickle consumers. Like there's no, there's no there there for them to sort of latch onto, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I actually don't know how to evaluate this. I haven't seen very many examples of this, uh, particularly where the, sort of base product is a beer. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't want to say it's impossible, but uh, I do, I have looked at brewing across the generations and yeah. continents, and uh, I don't see a huge amount of evidence that this this works from the brewery side. Though things have changed and yeah. we're, we're maybe in a brand new world. I would, I, I think there are so many moving parts for a brewery. If most people were starting a brewery and you told them they had to think about fashion and record labels uh, they would probably get out a gun because that's like too many things to think about um but i i also think that you're right focusing dialing in i mean i think one of the reasons brew pub or tap rooms are generic is because it's easy it's like i know how to do this i've seen a million of these i'll just we'll just 
you know, do this same model. Yeah, and the it's, austere aesthetic is nice because it's fairly cheap to build out. And it's hard to, but it's, I think it's, it's hard maybe, to design that. Like that's a whole, yeah. a whole another thing. So when you're talking about in, in going into completely distinct and and totally unrelated uh, product categories, that's that's going to be really hard, especially for little breweries that start out. Maybe you know. New, New Belgium, Sierra Nevada style could conceive of that. Maybe I don't know. It's funny, you know, the, the the brewery that I think of immediately when I hear all this is Ninkazi, because back in the day when Ninkazi were really the it an it brewery and they had a very distinctive brand and a distinctive aesthetic, there like turquoise color and they were really big into promoting music and and live music of, uh, events mm-hmm. um, they really pushed hard into that stuff and it was all very successful i think they were incredibly successful brew at the time and that sort of um uh i think i think of them maybe as the most like proactive brewery in that sense like really going after different right different areas and different categories um and you just don't see that as much anymore so I guess what I would say is that brand is really important and people will sort of latch onto the brand, but I think you need to be offering consumers a distinct experience. I think that's what, so I'm going to sound like a real Madison Avenue type now, but I think that's what breweries <laughs> need to focus on a little more is the overall experience. I don't think it's enough just to have good beer anymore. Um, uh, I think, um, you know, uh, the design of the, of the pub or the tap room is important. The having an aesthetic like you talked, having some kind of identity is important. Something that you can sort of be remembered for and latch onto. Some kind of neat place you can take friends and you can talk about the fact that you know they're putting a noir film on the wall or whatever it is that uh, that it is. That I think um, uh, that might be the next frontier. Like you know, it, for a long time, it's just it's just enough to have a good beer, right? Um, and kind of a sort of a cool space is okay and fine. But now I think, I think that you might have to be leaning it more into sort of, um, creating an experience. And that also includes the brand. Like what is your brand aesthetic and how are you sort of building that aesthetic in your, in your built out space? So. Okay, Patrick, here's the, here's the five rupee question. Good. Can, time. Yeah. Do you think we can ever have another brewery successful, say break, break side or 10 barrels? So for those who are not here, we're talking about. Dis, uh, breweries that uh, are distributed to re- regionally and probably have, um, you know, north of 30,000 barrels of volume. Yeah, and also that, but I think their experience, like both of them started as a little brew pub. Right. Very quickly, very popular, quickly built on that popularity and grew and grew and grew um, and became pretty big regional breweries. Um I don't know, maybe regional is a stretch, but pretty big, decent-sized breweries. Um, multi-state, at least. I think it's... Multi-state and multi-location, like yeah. um, with multiple right. uh, tap rooms or, or, or brew pubs. Totally, right. Good call. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it's easy because you think, could we ever see another? Yes, we could. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I would also you, you left that one open, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> but I would also say that right now I don't think that's where the market's at. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I don't think you're going to find that one thing that just goes nuts and then they expand, 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 and then there's just demand, 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 demand that they're filling. I think I think not only uh, 
will we see another? I, 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 you're, I think all of that's true, but I think we will see these breweries, and I think we'll see them in the next five years. I think Portland will have another it brewery that's growing pretty fast. It probably is going to take longer to grow the size, and and I mean even Breakside took, you know, yeah, quite a quite a long time to get to its current size. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I I think it the history the history shows that uh, breweries become popular. It's very hard to stay as popular. It, you know, if you look at Deschutes and Ninkasi and Rogue mm-hmm. and Full Sail, the breweries that have been successful in, in Oregon, they're all smaller now than they were at their their peak. Uh, and little breweries have gotten bigger, and that's just the way of things. So I think that uh, you know we we didn't he didn't mention Great Notion, but Great Notion uh, was founded after uh both those two breweries and yeah, has grown 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 pretty big so yeah. they they found they did exactly what we're talking about they have a high concept mm-hmm. uh they have a pretty good uh very strong I, identity very strong identity very good idea of kind of what they wanted to do in terms of multiple brew pubs um and they've grown very well so i think is there is there space for that in any market? I think there's always space for that. People will get excited about beer. They've always gotten excited about beer. So I think I think it will happen. Um, I think you're right. It's going to be a lot harder than it ever has been, but it'll happen. That's yeah. what I think. But that's actually a really good. I, I hadn't thought of Great Notion until you mentioned it, but that's a perfect, I think, example of what I'm talking about is creating that experience, that right. expectation, what you're going to get when you get there, the kind, what they're known for, what you look at. Their aesthetic is very prominent i haven't been to their physical spaces but once <laughs> so i can't really say like how much that that exudes itself in their physical spaces but um but i think a place that can do that and maybe that's what away days um is going to do we should probably take a moment to talk about away days project oh yeah um as part of this uh, totally but but yes so i know I think- it's i i hope <laughs> i hope we're not talking about it too late uh in terms of they're asking for investors, yes. uh, and I know it's closing in the not too distant future. I hope I hope this comes out before it closes, so you can check into that. Uh, yeah, I have to double back because I was going to invest. So. <laughs> oh yeah, well I'm, I'm yeah. As we recorded, I know it's still available. Yeah. Uh, so Oedes is building out a place in Troutdale. Yeah. Right. Is it? Yeah. Cresham or Troutdale? Troutdale. Troutdale. Okay. Pretty sure it's Troutdale. So out by the e- um, east of Portland. Yeah, east of Portland, on the way to the, the Columbia River Gorge. Uh, probably not too far away from the McMinimans. Um, um, I'm blanking. Edgefield. Edgefield, thank you. Uh, and they have this cool... I've been, I've been on Twitter too long. I almost said Edgelord. No, that's wrong. It's Edgefield. <laughs> they also they also have the they have a building that they're basically renovating and building out into a fairly big space, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty cool. I'm pretty excited. And uh, they are asking... They have this... Um, do you remember the name of the vendor that does the financing no so you, you can you can um, i'm sure i'm sure if you go to the website yeah go to, website. go to the way Day's website and see but basically what they're doing is crowdsource funding it's not crowdsource funding they're going to pay you back well so it's not just isn't that crowdsource no, no crowdsource yeah crowdsource funding is like just give it's a money? tip jar yeah oh okay no that didn't mean that yeah uh uh um uh peer uh peer-to-peer funding i don't know what the term of art is yeah could be um, but you actually earn a pretty good return in five years' time. I think it's like ten percent return. Yeah, I think they're offering ten percent return, and they'll take small, small donations, and uh, and basically through the power of uh, public support, they'll hopefully fund this adventure. Yeah, and and I, it be, because it's not uh, crowdsourcing. I think it's a cool thing. I've seen a lot of breweries where it is crowdsourcing, or like 
give us five thousand dollars and you can be a member of our mug mug club uh. and uh you know which is cool if you want to do that but um they're actually offering an opportunity for you to earn yeah decent amount of return and and of course it's a riskier bet you sure. know you buy <laughs> put it in the bank you're gonna it, you'll definitely get your money back but yeah but they're offering a decent return for it and yeah of course you're taking on some risk but you know the idea is that everybody gets in for a fairly small amount and so the what, what's at risk is small. Indeed. Uh, we better actually wrap this up because we're getting over time. So. We, should, we should say that but the, yeah, the we Heavy Alice, talked about the beer. <laughs> uh, it is very, it's a, so now that you taste it, I bet you can taste the Belgium. Mm-hmm. It's a very yeast forward IPA. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it's actually, it's yeah, it's very uh, uprighty, I think, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, old uprighty. Like you actually don't find these kind of beers at upright that much anymore, but back to their early days when they were making much more Saison kind yeah. of beers. Uh, it's a fun beer. It's not actually the kind of beer that he makes that often. So yeah. uh, I should say people should look for this brand, which is available and not, there's no brewery. It's a, you'll find it at places like Belmont station or bottle shops. Uh, Do they put it on tap at, um, at uh, living house? No, they don't. Um, they all, I think, I think Gavin is committed to trying to make li- the living house brand successful. And that's yeah. a living house pub. So gotcha. Um, this is really just a side project, but cool. he does a lot of loggers. That's kind of his thing, and yeah. his uh, his German lager, his German pills, I love. And uh, yeah, it's a kind of a soft version. It's very nice. So look for that too. All right. Well, we really uh, got to move on. We have one mailbag, which I'm going to try to squeeze in really quickly here. Yeah. So May Shum writes, "Hi Jeff, Patrick. It's May, former Yale med student, current doctor at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Oh wow." Yeah, you remember her? I she remember did. May. Yeah, yeah, I do. So she, but I remember her as the med student. Exactly. So now she's at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. That's right. Congrats. She's moving on up, and she's still listening. That's Doing so amazing. residency, I suppose. So get some right. sleep. <laughs> no, no, there's uh, no sleep. But she's still a loyal listener. Okay, so she has a mailbag question for you. Uh, my significant other picked up a left-hand coffee milk stout for a football game, thinking that coffee would make for good morning beer, but as expected, found it to be too heavy, uh, or giving dessert vibes. But it prompted us to wonder, what makes a good brunch early beer, a.k.a. the equivalent of a mimosa or a Bloody Mary? Hmm. All right, so what's a good morning a brunch beer Well, for you? A classic morning beer mm-hmm. is uh, a Bavarian Weizen. Okay. And in Germany, it's a breakfast beer. So you get your you get your Weiss first and your Weiss beer. I think it's Weiss first. Is that what they have for... So they have the they have a morning sausage. I think <laughs> yeah, it's I think I it's know. I think it's, it's a lot of meat and cheese and bread. I remember that. That's right. But and sometimes on if you take a train in Bavaria, you'll see you'll actually see people with their morning breakfast having a, uh-huh. a, 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 a wheat beer. And I never did that. That's uh, kind of a blew my mind. But you know, it's <laughs> soft. It's relatively low alcohol. It's kind of effervescent. It's so in, in that mimosa kind of vein. It might actually work. So that's that's my opening bid. Um, yeah, and I drink a lot of tea, and and maybe because of my background, what I think of is a really low alcohol English ale, very malty, a warm sort of malty, comforting, like, like a mild, ale. like a mild or a bitter. Yeah, um, to me that seems like a nice, a nice morning beer, something that's very, very uh, bready. I think we need to crowdsource this. Yeah, to all our to all our morning drinkers out there. Uh, I would not. I mean, stout uh, stout is not. I know, like a milk stout. I, I imagine some people might think. For me, that's not, or coffee stout. I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't think of that as a morning beer, but um, yeah, I mean, I could I imagine, imagine like would. a coffee porter that's yeah. you know five percent coffee porter that's not very thick. Uh, that would yeah. probably be pretty tasty. Yeah. yeah, that would that would actually kind of mimic a cup of coffee. So yeah. I could imagine that would work. All right, well, that's but, th- but those are incredibly rare. I, when was the last time you saw a coffee porter? No, <laughs> no I know. Nineteen ninety-eight. Uh, yeah. So send us what's what's your morning beer, folks? What do you have when you go out to to brunch and you don't want the mimosa? Right. Actually, that's funny. Like, that's all you ever get offered, that or a Bloody Mary. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. All right, we should we should start the morning beer trend. <laughs> maybe it'll be a vice beer. Maybe it'll be an English ale. Uh, yeah. All, all a morning beer makes me think of is now i got to have a nap. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> that's the problem. I would never have a morning beer because I'd be asleep in about 10 minutes. Totally. All right, a few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. Because that helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments, your uh, favorite morning beer, to jeff at beervonabog.com or on Instagram at beervonapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at beervana, and we both Instagram at the beervonapod, fun game, who posted what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you can look at the quality of the photo and kind of identify who posted what, I think. But uh, you are stepping up your game. I'll give give you some credit. You're starting to step up your game. If it's amusing or entertaining, that's me. If it's uh, banal and pedantic, that's Jeff. (laughs) All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.